Hello, 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 and happy Saturday, happy Saturday indeed, and welcome into episode number 83 of the Sports Kiki Podcast. My name, of course, is Alex Reamer, and as promised last week, see, I promise, and well, some of the times I deliver, but as promised last week, we have a great guest lined up for you this week, Devin Haru is a sports reporter up in Canada for CBC Sports. He was covering the Olympics and Paralympics in Tokyo for 51 straight days, and he just got back a couple of weeks ago. He was there for both events, no breaks, and uh, he's openly gay. So uh, I thought Devin would be a great guy to talk to about not just what it was like covering these Olympics and him as a gay man, seeing the success of all the LGBTQ athletes, but really just talking to him about What the hell was it like to be in quasi-lockdown for 51 straight days in Japan while the Olympics and Paralympics went on? Devin is also slated to cover the Winter Olympics in Beijing next year, which, well, you don't want to predict into the future. We know that at this point in the pandemic, but uh, I certainly think that... If, if needed, the uh, lockdown measures in Beijing will be even more stringent than what everybody faced in Tokyo. So, uh, yeah, talking about just how he felt being at the Olympics and Paralympics while Tokyo was in a state of emergency over COVID. Did he kind of feel like he was dancing while the world was ending? I know I felt like that a few times this summer. Oh, I was literally dancing while it seems like the world was ending. Uh, but Devin Haru, that's coming up in a few moments. So uh, definitely want to stay tuned for that. And of course, the Carl Nassib Watch. It continues here in the Sports Kiki podcast and Outsports as a whole. He became the first... NFL player to play in a game as an out gay man this past Monday when the Raiders defeated the Ravens in overtime. A great game and a great performance from Carl Nassib, who had the strip sack that set up the game-winning touchdown. And our co-founder, Jim Pazinski, wrote this over the summer. Uh, I think it was right when training camp began in late July, early August. But the premise of his column was that Carl Nassib will never have to prove that he's good enough. This is already an established pro who came out as gay. There's no question, oh, did the Raiders pick him up because they wanted the credit for bringing in a gay player? Will his sexuality affect his status on the team? Nope. As expected, he made the roster without incident and was part of a fearsome Raiders pass rush on Monday night. And as far as the coverage is concerned, like it was throughout training camp, it was really no big deal. I mean, I I keep saying this, but it's worth saying because it's so true. Just go back even to the Michael Sam era in 2014. Let's say he did make a roster, and let's say he was on Monday Night Football, especially the season opener. You don't think that would have been a central storyline coming into the game? Here he is, the first out gay player playing on an NFL field. Of course it would have been one of the major storylines leading into the game, would have been one of the major talking points coming out of the game. Not the case at all with Carl Nassib. I mean, I think ESPN handled it well. They did about a minute to 90 second thing on him somewhere in the third quarter, just saying this is Carl Nassib. He came out over the summer. He's the first out gay active player in the NFL. And, you know, Brian Greasy said a few nice words. He was in the booth and and that was pretty much it. And they moved on. So it would have been very bizarre and I think wrong if ESPN didn't acknowledge it at all. I mean, it is a historical moment. They should acknowledge it, and they did, and they did a great job. They gave it what, it what they said what needed to be said. They recognized the history. Brian Greasy, an ex-player, ex-quarterback, gave his thoughts on Nassib and the importance of him coming out and what that means, and then they continue to play football. 
where Nassib uh, continued to dominate. So uh, we'll be on Carl Nassib watch all season long. But I think now the biggest message that Carl Nassib can send is continue to be successful on the field. And he's off to a great start given his performance Monday night. So that's it on Nassib for this week. We also had a Chinese volleyball player come out as gay as well. She's believed to be only the third out Chinese athlete who we know of. So that's pretty cool. You can read that story in Out Sports. And you can hear Devin Haru from CBC. That's on the other side of the sports. Kiki, thank you as always for listening. And welcome back to the Sports Kiki Podcast. As I was saying in the opening, very excited for uh, my guest this week. Devin Haru is the uh, Olympics reporter for CBC News, north of the border in Canada. I spoke with him over the summer for a story on OutSports about uh, LGBTQ representation in the media at the Olympics. And Devin was there for Tokyo for the Olympics and Paralympics as well. So uh, he has a lot of stories to share. Devin, how are you? Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, Alex, my pleasure to be talking to you again. How am I? Uh, I think I'm still sort of decompressing and reflecting and and taking in all that happened over 51 days in in Tokyo and other regions. And yeah, just really trying to catch my breath. But at the same time, of course, looking forward because in four months, uh, we're doing this all over again for the Winter Olympics. This is an extraordinary stretch. But uh, a career highlight for me to be in Tokyo. Yeah. The Canadians performed really well. And, you know, for as much concern and fear as there was, and, and it was warranted, I think these games had to happen. They did happen. And I think the feedback I've received is that, thank goodness, they happened. Oh, really? Why, why thank goodness? Well, I, I, I think my reflection, and I wrote this piece for CBC Sports after the Paralympics, because I covered both, right. was that we were reminded, Alex, of the power of sport and the collectivism that sport brings to our lives. You know, we've been so ripped apart and torn apart and isolated by this incessant pandemic that we, I, I think we were looking for something to feel something again to remind us of our dreams and our goals and our aspirations and all of these things and sport has that ability to do that right right and so you know not to wax poetic too much or get too uh you know sentimental or anything like that but i i really believe at least in canada you know we had our women's soccer team win the gold and beat Mm. the americans and then beat the swedes in that incredible penalty kick like more than five million canadians watched that game and it was such a collective joy that rippled across this country um i think it's what we needed i think we all just wanted to celebrate and i think in a lot of ways canada is also sort of coming of age and realizing that maybe we aren't just a winter sporting nation. We can be good at the Summer Olympics as well. So I think there were just a lot of things um, in my perspective, in my opinion, that sort of said, yeah, we needed these games. And and like I said, I've received so many notes from people saying, I was skeptical. I, I wasn't really sure how to feel about whether I should be cheering or watching because of the pandemic. And by the end of it, 
their sleep patterns were completely out of whack right. because they were watching everything overnight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, U.S. I mean, we're, we're such a we're way way more polarized than you guys. So we we had a lot of polarization among the uh, the Olympic protests and the U.S. soccer team, per usual. But uh, you know, me as an, a gay person, I got a lot of pride in the success of Team LGBTQ, which I do want to ask you about in a second. But you mentioned celebrations, though. Um, what was the atmosphere like there? Did it feel celebratory? Did it feel stoic, stayed? What was the atmosphere like on the ground there? Yeah, it's a good question because it was surreal, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the venues that I spent a lot of time in was at the Tokyo Aquatic Center, which is a stunning venue along the along the water in, in Tokyo. And it's huge, right? I mean, 15,000 people can fit in this venue and it was empty. It was empty except for, you know, the teams and some of the coaches. And what was what was so striking to me is the juxtaposition between these incredible moments of golden glory and and nothing. And yeah. and just no outpouring of fans or applause or you know, the wonderful images we usually see with the parents celebrating with the Olympian and they go to the ISO shot in the crowd of the teary eyed parent and the flags and just all of that. You had none of that, but, but yet I'm so glad you asked me this because I'm, I'm talking about it for the first time and processing it as I, as I talk through nice. it with you, you like that. but at the end of the, at the end of the day, it's still the Olympics. It's still the Paralympics and it's still going to be, remembered in history until the end of time. And despite the fact that there weren't those moments of, of celebration in the stands and whatnot, those athletes still had the spontaneous outpouring of emotion yeah. that you would see in front of a, a filled stadium. And so a lot of things were happening at the same time. And, and there I am as a journalist, Alex, as you know, trying to remain objective, but Canada performed quite well at the yes. pool. And I was pacing. I was pacing in the press box, in the press tribune. My heart was pounding in the same way it would uh, in, in front of uh, thousands and thousands of people. So if you want to talk about the feeling of the games, it was still there without spectators being in the venues. Yeah, I mean that that that's interesting to hear that the that the feeling carried over even in empty venues. Um, and you know, like, what did you you said the word surreal? Like, how did it feel just being covering the Olympics, given that there was a state of emergency in Tokyo? Like, you know, I I went away a few times this summer to to Provincetown, which is our big game mecca uh, near where I live in Boston, a great 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 town. I highly recommend it. But um, you know, like I felt like when I was there, like <laughs> yeah, I. I, I... Yeah. You no, know, you know of it. Have you been? Have you been? I've never been, but but I was sorry for interrupting. I was going to say now I got to get there. You got to so get there. I'll put it on the list. Yes, total great. I mean, so literally, I was dancing while the world ended in July and August. Like that's kind of how I felt there, <laughs> being a reveler in this time. <laughs> how did you feel covering the Olympics during this time? It was a really, it was one of the most challenging career and personal decisions I've ever had to make yeah. um, because for 13, 14 months, Alex, I grappled with how I was going to cover this, 
the tone of the coverage, always with the perspective that the games are probably going to go ahead. But yet I felt like I had a diligence and a duty as a reporter to make sure that I always knew that more important things were at play, that people's lives were at stake, that, that we have all been living under these restrictions. And I, and I got to say that I had a very critical edge in my reporting. I don't, I don't um, regret that for a second because I think those questions needed to be asked. And I think when we talk about the Olympic movement, I think there was a little bit of disappointment that I heard from people in that two things could have been true at the same time. You could want the Olympics to go forward, but you could also voice and express concern about them going forward. And I felt like when you talk about polarization, I felt like if you were being critical or asking the questions you were a naysayer and against the Olympics. Like that wasn't the case at all. I love the Olympics. I love at its purest form, what Olympiism and Olympiism and, and Paralympic movement and what that all stands for. It gets a little murky with all the things leading up to the games, but I really was conflicted about what it was like for me to be able to travel into a country that hadn't allowed a lot of its own, and native people uh, to return. Right. I had notes from people saying they couldn't return to see family and all that. Now I'm coming to return to cover games, you know, like that, that was a really, really challenging thing for me. And I guess one of the things I pride myself on is always remembering the heart of what this is all about and that it's humans having human experiences. And so I tried to have a lot of compassion and empathy. And I, and I think I did that. I think I did a good job of, of sharing those stories of the impact of what this was going to have on Japan. And, and, you know, I had awesome moments of, you know, all of these gifts that were sent to me and the seven 11 meals and, and that whole situation, you know, being really embraced by Japan. And I think it was really because I always remembered the humanity that exists within the games. Um, but it was, it was no doubt really challenging for me to get on that plane and, and get there and the restrictions were, were challenging and the weather were challenging and all the protocols were challenging, yeah. but I wouldn't have tra- traded it. I wouldn't have traded it for anything else, Alex. Well, that's the other thing. The weather was insane, right? I mean, like over a hundred Fahrenheit every day. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was stifling. It was absolutely stifling. And, and the other thing of it was, is, is we had to wear masks outside as well as inside and and you know there i was at national stadium on these sweltering evenings um breathing through a mask sitting on press row trying to you know string together coherent thoughts um in a story which which i i I hope i was able to do but yeah you know and and a spit test the saliva spit test every single day which let's be honest was better than having something shoved up your nose uh, yeah. every single day. Sure. Um, but also like two, two apps, health apps that I had to fill out every day. And like, I, I worked 16 to 18 hour days every single day. And, you know, then you add the protocols and you add the apps and you add the spit tests and you add the travel to the venues and the security. And it was a challenge. I was exhausted. It was, it, it pushed me for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, you know, you're there for 51 straight days. Like, were you under semi-quarantine for all 51 days? Like, what could you not do and not do? Yeah, it was, it, you know, they called it kind of a, a quasi-quarantine. So for the first 14 days we were there, we literally could only go from the hotel to the media transport to the venue there was a 7-Eleven attached to the hotel, which became a thing of its own because that's where all the international media, it was a Mecca. Like that's where we were eating. Right. And it was open yeah. 24 hours and I was normally getting back at 1130 midnight, 1 a.m. And so you go to 7-Eleven and you it's actually pretty gourmet. It's pretty bougie. Like I was impressed with the 7-Eleven suggestion. It's not the big gulp. Um, you know, nacho cheese that's been sitting there for hours. What is it? Sort of North American experience. I mean, like, there was, like, sushi. There was oh. onigiri. There was every sandwich, every salad, every dessert. Oh. Um, all the different types of alcohol. Like, a really good alcohol selection. Huh. Um, you know, that I didn't dabble in. Um, but a lot of people did. <laughs> Um, ice cream, all the different types of ice creams, all the different types of snacks. Like, it was gourmet. Like, I tweeted out a photo of my 7-Eleven dinners most nights, and it went viral. Like, right, I saw that. It, I'm missing it. I'm missing it. I'm missing it, to be honest. Like, it was it was just so easy to go down to 7-Eleven and be mindlessly buying my dinner and, and, and getting the machine-made lattes every morning. But... Um, yeah, it was it was a challenge. So we were we were subjected to that. And then once we were clear of that, we could basically, you know, walk about and take the subway and do things like that. But there was there was always this feeling, not in a menacing, mean sort of way, but there was always this feeling like eh, people particularly don't want us here right now. You know, like kind of that look of like, yeah, you're in our country, but like, stay in your venues. Like, we don't really want to see you out and about. You know? Mm. Could you feel that when you were there? Yeah, you could. Yeah, you could definitely feel it. Like, listen, people were super welcoming. They were gracious hosts, but there was a feeling like, hey, we're still in a state of emergency. We're still in a pandemic. We told you we didn't want the games right. to happen. Why are you here? Right. Hmm. So how often did so did you how often did you leave the the Olympic Village or arenas Olympic compound I didn't like yeah, yeah like, like I I didn't a lot I yeah. didn't a lot I mean there were a couple of nights in between the Olympics and Paralympics because there were 17 days that I you know I would go out and you know the Shibuya crossing that iconic crossing where everybody scrambles across like I did some of those things the restaurant closed at 8 p.m., like all of the restaurants closed at 8 p.m. Right. every single night. Right. So, you know, I, I tried to go have some ramen and some traditional dinners there. And, and, and just, Alex, in a way, I wanted to feel like I was in Tokyo, right? Like you're in yeah. one of the most incredible cities in the world, and yet you're sort of subjected to, to venue to venue to venue. So in a way, I got a sense of what was going on. Um, but I'll certainly have to go back to get a better feel of what Tokyo and what Japan is like. And and, hmm. and many people have said, please come back. You know? yeah. So it's on the list. Come back when we can stay open past 8 p.m. Um, so <laughs> I was going to ask, though. I mean, so, okay, so you had your 7-Eleven. That was great, your 7-Eleven moment. But, you know, besides that, uh, 
you're working 16, 18 hour days. You're not, especially those first two weeks, you're not allowed to go anywhere. You're really, it seems like alone and by yourself. Like how did, did you, did you go insane? I don't know if I would have made it. I'm going to be honest with you. I will say this, uh, and, and I would never mention any names, but here, the Olympics are pressure-packed, stressful, isolating, anxiety-inducing, uh, sleep-deprived at the best of times. This was on a completely different level. And, like, anecdotally, I talk to journalists who are, like, veterans of the games, who, Alex, who have been, like, to the games 10, 15 Olympics, right? Yeah. These people told me they've never been pushed like this in their careers. And, and some people broke. I'm not going to lie. Some people broke down and, and couldn't, couldn't handle the, the rigor of it all. And like I said, I, I, for me, I kind of get into this like adrenaline-induced zone where I just go, go, go. It's like, where am I going next? I'm on television. I'm on radio. I'm on the... I'm writing this story, then I'm back on TV. Then I'm on the bus, I'm writing a story on the bus. And boom, boom, boom. And for like 17 days, I'm a machine, right? And then after the Olympics, I kind of had, I wouldn't call it like a breakdown, but I I had that post-Olympic blues because it's like a five-ring circus. And it's so exciting and exhilarating. And then everybody leaves. And then you're there getting ready to cover the Paralympics and the Paralympics still doesn't get the quality of coverage it deserves. I was one, I was the only Canadian reporter in Tokyo for the Paralympics out of the entire country. The Mm. only Canadian reporter. Uh, I don't know how big the presence of NBC was, but I didn't see a lot of reporters from NBC. Like it's exponentially. So you go from this high to like, oh my God, now everybody's gone. And now what? And it's hard. It was hard to really get myself back up for that. But but I did. And you do it all over again for 12 days during the Paralympics. So um, it's not for the faint of heart. It really isn't. And, and it's going to be a lot like that in Beijing. I'm hearing the restrictions are going to be just yeah. as intense, if not even more, t- more tight. So it's going to be... It's a challenge. I kind of look at it as being sort of an athlete myself, and, and I was training for it, and, and I, I, and I kind of like collapsed at the finish line. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, sleep, you know, sleep-deprived, anxiety-inducing in the best of times. Like, why do you like covering this? It sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> I love that question. Well done. Good Thanks. for you. Um, Listen, it's still the Olympics and Paralympics. And for a sports reporter, that is a pinnacle of what we do. I also love a big stage and a big audience. And uh, Canadians were so amped up for these games. We set so many records for coverage um, of, of Canadians just consuming what we were putting out there. And for the athletes, like, these athletes are incredible. These Olympic and Paralympic athletes are just the, the pure love of sport, the pouring out of heart for, for this stuff. You know, like, it, it gives me goosebumps thinking what these people do. And, and it's not only 
the gold medal moments and the podium finishes. It's the the fourth place finish, fighting through injury, carrying each other out of the pool. One of our one of our divers, she shouldn't have been walking. She had a scooter, a motorized machine. There she was diving. They came in fourth. Her partner literally carried her on her shoulders out of the press conference room. Mm. Like, and on and on and on. Like, these are the moments of the games that just sort of remind us of of all the things we want to be, at least for me. And so Mm. to bear witness to that, to have a front row seat to that, and to have the responsibility that I don't take lightly to share these stories with the rest of the world. Um, it's an honor for me. And to be the public b- broadcaster in Canada doing that work, like, this is it. Like, if, if I only cover Olympics and Paralympics for the rest of my career, I will be very happy wow. with that. You're very sleep-deprived and very happy. Um, <laughs> no, that's a, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's a great answer. And I, I also wanted to ask you as, an open, you know, as a gay man, what did it mean for you to be there on the ground and see all of the uh, great uh, LGBTQ representation and success. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just bursting with pride, right? I mean, what were the final numbers? I think uh, Team LGBTQ, right, it was it seventh overall yeah, in the final standings? I, so, yeah, I yeah. mean, I, yeah, and I think the final number is, what, 183 publicly yeah. LGBTQ Crazy. athletes and great work At by least, you guys right. to, to compile the list. Yeah, and, and it was a groundswell, right? Like, I remember watching the updates you guys were providing. And Thanks. I, I was just, it was just such a empowering feeling, and it, and, it, and it felt different. It felt like athletes, specifically LGBTQ athletes, were just stepping into their light. I think about Quinn, uh, the first non-binary transgender person on the Canadian women's soccer team to win an Olympic medal. They were outstanding. And and seeing the way the media rallied around Quinn after that gold medal and shared that story was just, it it was spellbinding for me. And then to interview Steph Labbe on the pitch, after she had made all those saves to lead Canada to victory and having written a, a piece about her and Georgia Simmerling um, being girlfriends competing together in Tokyo. And now they're engaged. Um, you know, there were just so many moments where I was just so damn proud. Um, and I made, I made a point of making sure I was tweeting about that every so often because I had this conversation, Alex, the other day with a friend here in Toronto about about their perspective of how, like, they know me personally, but how they were consuming my coverage. And what my friend said to me is she loved the subtle little reminders that I would include in my, like, inside baseball coverage of, of tweeting of how I would say, oh, and by the way, Quinn is transgender and non-binary or Steph Labbe and her girlfriend. Like I always made sure that I was providing these reminders of the bigger things at play within the sport. And I think sport has always had sort of this, um, like it just disarms people, right? Like it disarms people to go, yeah, like, great that I was watching Steph Lappe and she's a lesbian and she's kicking ass for Canada. Yes. I support her, you know, like it just, and, and even for me, people following my coverage. Yeah. 
Devin's a gay sports reporter, but I just love what he brings to sport and brings to the world. And, and I got so many of those notes. Um, I was, I was, I was beaming. I was just so, so happy and just so proud of all of the athletes who really stepped into their own. And I think these games were so important and a real turning point of, of how we move forward. And I just don't think there's any turning back from this point. No, I agree. It seems like the avalanche is, uh, is on the horizon and that's, uh, and that's and for once, that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. The dominoes are falling. Uh, Devin Haru, CBC news, CBC sports. He'll be there on the ground for Beijing in just four months, already getting ready for that. Devin, thanks so much for the time. This was great. Always appreciate speaking with you and, and really just keep up the great work. You're making such a difference. And, and that's what I would say to end, Alex, is, yeah. you know, when we talk about these numbers about athletes and, and sharing these stories, like this can be life-saving for, for young right. um, young children who see these athletes. And so, you know, keep up the great work is, is what I would say in closing. All right, Devin was awesome. I uh, had the uh, p- uh, privilege of uh, first talking to him over the summer. I should say the pleasure. Well, there's a privilege, I guess, to talk to cool people. But I had the pleasure of talking with him earlier this summer for a separate story I did about out reporters covering the Olympics. That's where he made the connection, and it was great to get him on the show and have him talk about his experiences. So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next on the podcast next Saturday.